You're exactly where you need to be. And you're listening to ADD Comedy with Dave Rizowski. Today's episode, we're going to be re-releasing an interview I did with Brian Stack. Brian is an alumni of the Second City, but he's also a great writer who's written for Conan for years and years, both in New York and in L.A. He's leaving L.A. to head over to work on the great and Oh, I just can't wait. The great show Late Night with Stephen Colbert. In this episode that we're doing, that you're going to hear, Brian talks about how much respect he has for Colbert. He also talks about shaking up his life a little bit and um, just how how it, it pays to be focused and take chances. And he's just one of the nicest people on the planet. Please enjoy this episode, and I'll talk to you at the back end. Thanks. Actually owned Kelly's bar, you know that Christina worked at. Um, oh yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is, uh, but when my mom grew up there, she grew up right near DePaul, and when she grew up there, it was very working class, like firemen and mm-hmm. Irish, you know, working class. Uh, in fact, my my cousin who owned Kelly's was a fireman, and uh, my dad grew up on the South Side. He went to Leo, mm-hmm. and uh, which I think is still there, right? I don't yeah, know. yeah, Leo's there. Okay, Leo's there. Cool. Um, and you grew up on the northwest side? I grew up in north side. North side. So far north side. So when we moved into our house, we had, uh, when we moved into, it's an interesting thing. We moved from, uh, we had a, we lived in the townhouses in Rogers Park, and then we lived in, um, and then we moved to, to California. And oh, we, I lived here, I went here for first grade, and then we moved back to Chicago. Oh, wow. And then we moved, we lived in uh, Westridge, which is Devon and Ridge. And then we moved to this house. And in this house, it was the first time we had a house. And in the attic of the house, where it was, it was empty except for this box of magazines. And it was uh, the person that owned the house was Saul Eisenberg. In 1951, he owned this house, and he had a box of Time magazines from one year. And he just put them all in a box, read them maybe, maybe didn't, and then put them in the attic. That's so cool to have those. And then, yeah, and then I found magazine slip covers that was able to to put them in there. And I thought they've been in bo- they've been in boxes. I've been slipping those fucking things around since college. Oh, and so great. then I thought I'm going to display them. I went, and it's one of these things where you get a project. And I thought there's got to be a way for me to do this. So I bought window railing. You know how a window you, uh, slides into a, 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 the glass slides mm-hmm. into a window and then sk, sk, you know that thing, and I got like eight feet of it and I measured it out and I got a hacksaw and then a drill and I made shelves. Oh, that's really cool. People do that shit, not just Mike <laughs> Coleman I, and Pete Holney. I am useless when it comes to anything like that. That's in fact, Mike's going to help us with our house because I'm totally hopeless. You know. <laughs> so, you, so, so, uh, Miriam is here now, right? Yeah, Miriam and uh, our daughters came back in August. I was uh-huh. here for the la- the previous two years. I was doing the long distance thing, going from New York to LA it was crazy. But uh, they're here now and it they're settled in, which is great. That? How did you do it? Because for, for when I was married, Katie lived in, uh, Katie, I moved out here in 95, and she moved out here in July of 96. Oh, okay. And it was a year and a half of yeah. that. But you did it for longer. I tried to get back as much as I could, and I would see McCann all the time on the uh, flight. We'd be on JetBlue, and right. uh, Andrew Steele, whose family was back east, too, he works with Funny or Die and was an SNL guy and stuff. So I felt like I didn't feel so alone, at least knowing some other people were doing it, but... Um, it was pretty crazy, you know, so I'm glad we're all settled here. It is really crazy. And the faith, faith, trust, faith, the, the connection that you have. But isn't there also, you, you accept this is the scenario, and you accept that the scenario is going to be unique to your challenges to accept the scenario as it is. Yeah. And to know that behind all of this is this this bond that you all have, because you're a family, right. but could easily it could it could it could easily not be there. I, I don't know how to describe that other no, than that. I, I know what you mean because like I think it that I, in many ways <clears throat> to be honest, like for the twelve years we were in New York even I, I I worked such long hours that at times I felt like kind of a weekend dad anyway. Right. <laughs> like I would see them in the morning and right. get them off to school and then I'd get home at like midnight or 1 a.m. and they'd be asleep. And so uh, that's we a, that's got a... kind of used to it. And uh, as hard as it was, looking back, it's pretty crazy. And now with our new hours, I, I get to see them at night, which is great. And um, <sighs> so that's a lot better. And I can help out with some homework 
uh, which, God, it's something you forget. Like, and the homework situation for kids these days is so much more intense than it was, I think, when we were in school. And, and because it's more focused, or I think they just get a lot more work. Oh, you, you know, know what? There's also more testing now than there was back then. Yeah. I mean, back then, it just seemed like. There, there's more testing now. Back then, it seemed like you could, this is such a weird phrase, luxuriate in the uh, social studies, for mm-hmm. example. And I had some great teachers. I love teachers. Boy, well, I just well, love them. You've obviously probably brought a lot of that into your own teaching, which is great, because well, I know that's, and, and first of all, I admire great teachers so much because as much as I admire improv teachers like you or Mick, um, people who really know what they're doing, uh, I think I admire me more because I, I tried it a little bit and I wasn't very good at it. Were you a TA? I was a TA in Madison like, right. when I was going to grad school at University of Wisconsin, which is actually also where I started doing improv. Right. Um, but I, when I would try to teach improv, I found it very hard to be articulate in ways that could really help people. So when I would see someone who has a real gift for it, like you or Mick or Noah, where they could just zone in and give you something helpful, or Craig Kukowski, you know, the ability to just kind of say, hey, try this, and make an adjustment and really see a visible result. I I have tremendous admiration for it because it didn't come very naturally to me. It's interesting that you say, because it is looking at the smaller things of saying, and and, um, the people that you mentioned, we look at it as, if you want to say, microscopically. Like right now you're making, you made that choice, that choice that you made. I'm not looking at it saying, you need agreement. Like in that moment, did you see that you had two options that you can go to in that moment? You understand like the idea of right there, you blocked yourself at that moment to hit it at that moment. And Mick looks at things microscopically. Craig looks at things microscopically. Noah looks at things microscopically. And I look at things microscopically as well. Mm. And once you get to do this, because you're able to look at a sketch, same thing in your writing and go, that's the problem. That's why this isn't working. Do you agree with that? I think. Uh, at, I think. W- I feel lucky when I can zone in on what the, <laughs> the issue or the problem is, and sometimes it seems really clear. And sometimes I'm like, what? What? You know, we're just banging your head on the wall trying to. But aren't those the situations where it's more com- that scene is more complex than it needs to be, or is that there's no rhyme or reason? I often find that like. I've heard songwriters say this too, that a lot of times the best ones seem to just kind of flow out. Right. Where, and so you're not struggling. And, and a lot of my favorite ideas we've had at Conan have been almost, have been accidental, which goes back the to The interrupter, improv. dude. Oh, thanks. I'm telling you, like I looked at that and that is a, one of those perfect sketches. It is, oh, thanks, it is perfect. Dude. But don't you see how, I mean, I don't know how you wrote it, and I, 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 um, uh, I shared it today, because I looked at it, and I shared it online, and it, it, it flows. Oh, thanks, Dave. I, I, uh, I uh, oh, Michael Coleman, one of our former writers who now we uh, just We're talking about. Oh, yeah, down yeah, yeah downstairs, yeah. yeah. He's uh, one of my best friends, and I, I probably wrote more with Michael than anyone else, and he had the original idea for the character, and then it evolved as we wrote it into him having this ever more horrible personal life and that he was gleefully okay about. Um, but it, it got more and more, we got more and more into his crazy life and uh, as the bits went on and um, it was always fun to do. But you're also surrounded by people who are saying, who are um, saying yes to your creative process. The yeah. idea that it went darker and darker and darker and darker. It started out at this great thing, and just as somebody was interrupting, and then it went really dark. Yeah. But it went, it went gleefully. Did you say gleefully dark? Yeah, because I think, and I, I think I realized this looking back more than anything else, is so many of the characters I, I've done seem to be uh, dealing with incredibly darker negative stuff, but trying to do it with, a positive attitude, but that's that's your voice. I think that's you know. What, that, I think that's my own way of dealing with stuff that freaks me out or scares me in life because it's like uh, like dealing with people. Um, like I used to love to write for Joel, our announcer, because Joel, in this really upbeat announcer voice, would describe how his life was a shambles. But he would he would keep up the announcer presentation, but it would just be like I've been eating government cheese in my Chrysler, you know, and it would just be like. Um, and that's, I think I was like, oh my God, it took me, it was like years after Late Night that I realized almost all the recurring characters I did had that in common. They were, mm-hmm. um, that's well, your voice. Had just horrible, yeah, they were, they were pushing through 
all this horrible stuff and trying, but it, while acknowledging it at the same time. I think mm. that in that way, that's why I feel that that scene had legs was because underneath it all was a positiveness. So there's a pressure, tension, and dynamic that keeps that going as opposed to there's just the game of the scene. Behind it, there's this personality. There's, a, there's, there's this, this human being that's, that's, that's sensitive and struggling and you can <laughs> see this person. Um, there's a lot of sketch that I see where I think, I get your game and you better end it soon because <laughs> I don't know that it has the oxygen, that there's oxygen in it to let it go any further. Yeah, I, I, and I, we've all, I think, been there. And like, I know, like, going back to Second City, you know, you're kind of in one of those scenes when you're in one and you're on stage and you're like, oh, this one isn't happening. You know? <laughs> and it happened to the best people in the world I would watch. And uh, I think that's one of the fascinating things about that documentary, Second to None, you know, that follows the, the show Mick directed right, Paradigm with, Lost. With, because, yeah. Because you see, the, these are like people like Tina and and Dratch and, and Dorf right. and, and Jim Zulovic and Jenna and, you know, at the top of their game and yet you still see there are times where it's just not happening and then suddenly you find something and suddenly there a scene does have a spark to it. And um, I, I think that's such... I would recommend that documentary to anybody interested in process because to watch the best people... Uh, struggle with that and, and come out on with a wonderful show at the end. Just I chalk it up to Mick. I mean, I really, oh, yeah, really chalk a- it up to a good director. And, I, and, and uh, having talked to Stack, uh, it, like Conan is that too, in, in a certain respect. Like, what do you have? What's your idea? I think that whatever it is that you want to do. Less so because he's, Mick seems to be because the process of creating a, sec- a second city show is so different and you have the luxury of time again where it's like do it again and let's tweak this and do it again and where you say I don't want to do this anymore I don't see the purpose of this he'll go give it another shot yeah. and do this and you'll go okay I trust him Yeah, I trust him he's, he's amazing and I owe Mick more than I can say. He, he lived on my dorm floor in college, mm-hmm. and if it weren't for Mick, I, I doubt I'd ever have tried improv, even because I used to go see his group with Faith Soloway and Joe Bill and right. Dave McNerlin and those guys, and uh, I didn't really know any of them, but Mick, uh, Mick's the one that told me about Improv Olympic. Mick was the one that asked me to audition for his group, and I always chickened out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, But uh, if it weren't at for IU, him, IU. Yeah, at yeah. IU. I used to go mm-hmm. see them, and i go, oh, man, that looks fun. Right. But I just couldn't work up the courage to try. And then, uh, so thanks to Mick, I got the chance to get mad at myself for chickening out, and then uh, that forced me to try it later. And, got and it. And it was love at first scene. You know, when I tried it. I was like, oh my God, why did I wait this long? This is the most but fun I've ever so had. It's so interesting, the idea of why did I wait this long. It's like, you, you did it when you were going to do it. You know I what I mean? So, you yeah. did it when you were going to do it. Because yeah, I, yeah. I totally understand what you're talking about. And I also, because I, I've talked about it in the podcast before, the idea of the concept of laziness, like the idea of laziness or fear or whatever it's going to be. Like, we got to give ourselves slack because you do what it is that you do when you're ready to do it. Yeah, you're not yeah. able to, you can't do it before that. Because you can't. And I always think about the chick and the egg. And the chick is going to burst through that egg, not before it bursts through the egg, because it can't burst through the... I'm sorry, that chick is going to burst through the shell when it gets to that shell. It can't reach up and go, now! Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. And I think that... The one thing I hate to see, though, is when I see, like, an intern of ours at the show come in and say, I've been thinking about trying improv, but it does... I don't really know if I should, and... The one thing I hate to see is anyone uh, not try it out of fear because I just say no one was more scared than me. So just <laughs> if that's what's stopping you, don't let it stop you. If you're not sure it's for you, that I can respect that. A stand-up was never for me, even though I respect it tremendously. Well, yeah. I just never had an urge to do stand-up. Uh, I love it. I love watching it. Um, I could watch Louis C.K. for at a weekend marathon. Eddie you know? Izzard. Oh, Eddie. Yeah, they're right. just brilliant. And right. Patton Oswalt and Paul. Tompkins have such joy in their work. Right. I could go watch Paul. I go see Paul F. Tompkins do his show at Largo, and it's so inspiring. I would tell improvisers to go see him because he approaches his show the way all my favorite improvisers approach improv. It's just this sense of 
as corny as it sounds, just pure joy Absolutely. of being up there. And, Absolutely. You know, um, but it goes back to your pieces, too. The idea that behind all these human beings that you're, that you're creating, there's a joy in what it is that they're doing. There's, there's an energy in what it is that they're doing. And so I'm drawn to those same sort of people, because we were talking earlier downstairs about somebody who did not have that joy in their life, an improviser. And I don't want to watch that person. Yeah. I don't want to watch that person. And that person is on that person's own journey. Right. Right. And your intern is on your is on his own journey. And he is going to reach that point that he reaches when he reaches that point. And all that you can do is go, keep going, dude. Keep yeah. going. You're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I just did admire. I think you're right. I think maybe it does happen when it's supposed to happen. And uh, I just hate to see people hesitate out of fear because uh, I just always... But I they're going to overcome their fear when they overcome their fear. And for you to go, come on up the hill. It's like, you know, yeah. I love the idea of the journey. And mm-hmm. I love that we're all on our own journey. And especially this, all, all, looking at uh, being able to sit and talk to people in, you know, in the podcast that we all know. And to go, did you think that you're going to be where it is that you are right now? I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. And I, I look around and I'm like... All my closest friends, that most 99% of whom live out here now, were people I met, you know, in beginning improv classes on the stage. And just to think we're all still doing it in our own various ways. And, and that's it, in our own various ways. Yeah. And, and, and whatever expectations, again, the expectation, whatever expectations you have, you've modified them. Yeah, and you surrendered them. That's the thing I loved about your interview with Silas Ware Mitchell, who I've never actually met, but I love that interview. And he, I love how he was saying his goal was to be a working actor, but his expectations was to do very different things than he ended up doing. So, <laughs> right. you know, and that, right. that's part of the whole process is finding you're going to take some, some curves and some turns that you aren't expecting and just be ready to uh, embrace that. You know, and right. I think that's, that, that's great. I mean, I love how Mike Nichols said he didn't know he was a director until he directed the first time, he's like, oh, I'm a director. I, I didn't know I was a director. I get that. You know? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know that Second City, where you're at Second City, and I, and I remember thinking, why would anybody want to be a Second City director? <laughs> what, is, what, what, that, what is it? And then when I became a Second City director, I realized I was right. Why would anybody <laughs> want to be a Second City director? And it's a really a very hard job. I but can't at that imagine. moment, you go, oh, I see what I have to do here. And all that you do is what you, all that at that moment that you're at, you go, okay, it's not me fulfilling the job requirement, it's me fulfilling the task at hand. That makes sense, yeah. Just seeing what what you can bring to the the moment that's happening on stage and helping shape the the overall. That moment. Yeah, and helping shape the story of each individual scene. And And to take joy in that. And I know the pressure that you put into it very often, you go, well, you know, this is a job, I really need a job, I have to get insurance, I need money, I got a family, family, family. But if you worry about all those other things, you're not going to be present to that That, task. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's being, and I think it's another thing I've enjoyed hearing in a lot of your other podcasts is just that, that, enjoying what you're doing right now as an end in itself. And if you do that, it's much more likely to be a means to an end. Right. But it's when, like, I, I, I think it's, like, I think about all my favorite improvisers and you're watching them. Whatever they were doing at any stage in their career, they were doing it with a lot of joy and spirit. And that's why people thought of them and called them out maybe to New York or L.A. or whatever, say, hey, I know a guy. I know a guy. You're going to love working with this guy. That's it. Yeah. That's it. You're going to love working with this guy. And you go, oh, who doesn't want to love working with that guy? Whoever that guy is. Well, like when I heard that Colbert was the one that recommended uh, Carell for The Daily Show. Yeah. Everybody in Chicago loved Carell, obviously. Right. And we all, I I idolized myself, but like nobody in New York knew who Steve was. Nope. And and it's like, I I know just the perfect guy. Or when Adam hired Tina at SNL or... Tina hired Jack and Scott, you know. Right. It keeps going because people are like, I know the guy. You're going to love this guy. Look at all the Chicago people, Brian. Look at all those Second City people who are uh, the the, the foundation, the bones, the structure of, of... of so much stuff. And That's I'm not saying this so people go, oh, I'm, I'm from Kansas City, nothing's gonna happen to me. Because I know a lot of people from Kansas City, it's shit right, happens to them. Right. But it's just one of those like, look at that, just look. Yeah. Just look. It, it, it's amazing, you know, and, and just when I see 
similar things happening with UCB or iOS and, and just these communities that form. And, you know, a lot of the people that are out here in, in, uh, in L.A. now, um, almost everyone I, I knew in Chicago and New York seems to live here now. So I think that makes being out here right now a really a great thing because there's such a sense of community out here of former Chicagoans and even people I've never met. Like I loved your interview with Jim O'Hare, who I just met for the first time recently. Wonderful guy. And uh, just I loved hearing how he said that the Parks and Rec vibe was like had that kind of family second city feel. And right. I, I w- just could see the, the tone that Amy sets on the set. Right. Is not surprisingly just right. It's an ensemble, no ego, just playfulness. Hey, let's try this. Let's try that. And it shows in the show. And then people take that home. Yeah, exactly. I think they really do. And I think, you know, it, uh, and it's, I think you can tell, like I had friends who weren't even improvisers and sometimes they'd come see a show and they'd say, why does that guy hate that guy? (laughs) <laughs> Nobody, they never said it. But I'm like, is it that obvious? I'd be like, because I would know that that guy hated that guy. And I'd be like, really? You picked up on that? And it's it's very funny how it just comes through, you know? I, I Going back to the microscopic thing, where I, what I teach in my classes is that moment, that feeling, what are you feeling in that moment, that moment that you're feeling right there in that moment, are you aware that you're feeling in that moment, that moment that you're feeling in that moment, the energy that you're feeling in that moment, that energy there. That we glance and gloss and gliss past and fly past, but it's that moment of inspiration, whether that inspiration is, oh, I don't like what he just did, or I'm inspired by that, instead of, like, and, and to, to engage in that, mm-hmm. to engage in, in, in the feeling like that's the way that I feel, not to go that I hate that guy, I'm gonna fight with that guy, but to notice in that moment, like he does, that guy just did that move uh-huh. and he doesn't like that guy. Yeah. Or that woman just looked at me in a way that a woman's not looked at me in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I know that that just happened. Yeah, and, and I, I remember Dell saying, once when I was, before I even studied with him, I did a little interview with him when I was just an intern in college. Uh, and I remember him saying, the smallest emotional discovery that's real beats the hell out of the biggest one that's phony. And I'll never forget that quote. And it's exactly what you're talking about. Right. Just, what, what did I just see? Right. You just looked at me weird. Go into that. And, right. And conf- Bring it up with the other actor in within the scene. Do you remember the, the audience picks up on it anyway? Oh, clearly they're going to pick up on it. Yeah. Um, do you? Um, there's this movie Citizen Kane. Are you familiar with it? <laughs> so there's that scene where Bernstein is being interviewed behind the big desk, oh. and he's talking about um, uh, the girl on the boat. The girl on the boat. Oh, the Roger Ebert said that's his favorite. I know. That's what, what put it back in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that moment of the girl, and he goes, and he says uh, that he's he's going on a boat, and he passed this woman by, oh. and she gave him a look, and a date does not go by. He never met her. He never talked to her. A day does not go by where he doesn't think about that woman. It's a beautiful, and beautiful scene. It's a beautiful scene, yeah. but we have those moments in our lives all the time. Today, I'm walking, uh, I'm walking the dog, um, and there's a woman that walks down the street with, a, uh, with an emotionally uh, handicapped man. Handicapped? What do you call them? Emotionally? Um, what are we supposed uh, to call them now? Question. Emotionally um, midget. Emotional You're not dis- to say midget, uh, right? Di- Emotionally... Mentally disabled? Mentally I, I disabled. Don't know but it's clearly, we used to call it in the old days, the retarded word. Mm-hmm. But, but he's a middle-aged man, and I've seen her walk with him all the time through the neighborhood, this neighborhood. And she's, you know, he's like a, he's like, uh, he's like, a, tell me about the rabbits, George. You know, that, mm-hmm. that, that shape, that structure, that architecture. And she follows him and he just walks ahead and, 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 and does this gesture with his two hands. And it's really beautiful to watch. And today I was, they were walking toward me and I had the little dog and she's not on a leash and she walks up to people and I'm thinking, well, should I do that? And I thought, let's see what happens. So, he just walked past and Chips went up to this woman and this woman had this French accent and she was really lovely and I knew that she was lovely because she always walks him. I don't know what their relationship is. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, oh, I love that dog. That dog is just beautiful. It's a beautiful dog. And I said, yeah, it's good. I really could tell the spirit. And I said, yeah. And she said, like, you're attracted to her like she's a beautiful woman. And I said, I don't know why I said this, and I go, well, you should know, because that's what you are. And she laughed and walked away. 
And at that moment I thought, that, I did that. I don't know this person. But that's a moment that the two of us connected to. Yeah, yeah. In that moment. And, and what is she going to do with that? And here's the thing. I didn't hit on her. I just said it. And yeah. she walked away. It probably made her day. Yeah. It could have made her day, but it also could not have made her day. Like, oh, yeah. who's that? But who knows? But there's that moment that we have in that moment of like, I've got to say that to her. Mm-hmm. It, it, it came from a truthful place and you said it and, and you don't always know how people are going to react, like you said, but um, you don't know that on stage either. And that's one of the wonderful things about improv is like, ah, I don't know what they're going to do with this, but I'm going to say it because it's coming from an honest place. And, right. And I hope they come back with the same, you know, kind of honesty. And uh, I'd, I'd like to think I, that's, I think that's what we all shoot for. And there are those nights where you're like, oh, I was... Not being genuine out there tonight or whatever, but that, do you those feel are the that way? Do moments. you feel? But do you feel that way a lot that you're not genuine? I don't. I don't know that. I don't. I think that that's a that's a vestigial organ for you, and that's and again, I could be wrong, but I just feel like, do you really walk away and go, oh, that wasn't a... not not in uh, in life so much? Although I I do think I think I'm a little uh, I don't know if it's with the Irish Catholic background, but I think I'm. It's not a lack of genuineness, but there are times where um, I'm pretty repressed, like in terms of, like I never really learned how to, if I was genuinely angry, to express anger in a healthy, constructive way. Because, <laughs> you know. I don't a, know anybody, it's like, oh, I saw Brian Stack blow up. It was like, it was such an ugly thing. Oh man, I, and when, when I have it, like I remember once I, uh, I was backstage at late night and Jack McBurr was doing a little bit for us long before 30 Rock and uh, Gla- John Glazer's mic went out during a bit we could only do that day. And it wasn't even my bit, I just thought it was really funny. And when the mic started going out, it was such a preventable thing because the battery hadn't been changed. And I just go, what the fuck? And I threw this thing, I I was so outraged that, and Jack said it was like watching your dad cry. (laughs) Because he'd never seen me get mad. I was so, I was so, I was mad, I was was comedy mad though. I wasn't even mad at any, I was like, that, wonderful moment of comedy was just ruined and I think that that's uh, how I think a lot of us feel about comedy where it's just like that just that was really funny and that guy, it wasn't even my bit but it just got ruined and I by was a, so by mad. a fact by something that could be avoided because it's so hard like often we just want to get that truth out there and it's like this thing that could be avoided science yeah it was basically like it's a math problem that, that, aren't you isn't the mic supposed to just work? Why didn't the mic work? <laughs> right. And I remember Glazer's bit, it wasn't even my bit, and I just remember just go, I remember just being in Conan's dressing room with Jack, I don't know why I was in there, when it happened, and I just I remember just throwing these papers down, going, what the fuck? And, um, and I was just like, and so when I think when I do, it does scare people. Well, it's, but, 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 I mean, of all the people, like, me too. but also like Jack to go, Jack McBrayer, you go, what, what? Because Jack, I think I had to tell Jack McBrayer like 400 times, don't call me Mr. Rizowski anymore. Oh, I know. Just He's call a Southern me gentleman. David. And so for him, of all the people to be part of that going, no, 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 watch your dad cry. I That's know. hilarious. And I've never seen Jack yell, but it's funny when he tells us about I can remember him saying that one of the uh, PAs at 30 Rock wasn't delivering his sides in the morning. And he had to, and he said, he would say it very politely, I really need you to bring me my sides. And it's really important and in his very polite Jack way. But they kept not bringing them. And he finally, Jack, even Jack gets mad, you know. But I, I wish I could have seen it when he, because he said he got genuinely mad. And uh, I just... That's a very mysterious thing to me, just imagining what that's like, because he is the most... Yeah, he would say sir and ma'am when he was at late night with us, you know, sir and ma'am to the wardrobe department. He's just a real southern gentleman. And when I met his parents, they're exactly like that. They're just these wonderful little small-town Georgia... Oh, they must be so overjoyed at what he's doing, and I'm overjoyed. Like, looking at Jack, Jack's one of those people where you go, he's... So many seconds to people, you, you go, oh, they're really going to make it. They're really doing well. I really like what they're doing. They're really going to do it well. And some people don't go in the direction that you think that they're going to go, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, but Jack is one of those spirits where you go, of course he's going somewhere. It's the same thing with Keegan. Where you go, yeah. did you work, you work with Keegan, didn't you? I, I, no, I never worked with Keegan, but I remember seeing him. He, was, he had gone in for David Pompey in an ETC show when I was back home visiting my family in Chicago, and I was like, I was like, holy crap, that guy is amazing. He's... And the characters were so three-dimensional. And, right. And so it was no surprise later on when I would see him doing these wonderful characters on his show. 
but I never actually got to work with him. Uh, I know him now a little bit, but... Do you remember the scene that he and Naima did uh, where they're on the back porch and it was uh, these two African-Americans talking to these two black African-Americans talking to these white African-Americans. Do you remember that scene? I don't think I saw that one. Oh, my God. It was just like, they. Th- there were four people. There were the, the Naima and Keegan were playing these two, they were playing the, the like, what you, yeah, whatever, you know, that kind of uh, person. Um, and the gentrification of the, the, the upper crust blacks coming, black oh. coming in. And I look at that and I go, who are those other two people? Of course it was them. They played both sides, right. and they just did a little switch of their body. Oh, that's amazing to watch. And, to, and, and when I think about it, it's like, how is that possible that they played four people, but that there are only two people, and yet I look at that and I go, because they are great actors. And to look at the Second City quality of actor that's over there. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and I love when Kelly said, we aren't in an improv school. We're a theater. We're, we're not, we're not an... We're not an uh, we're not an improv theater. We're a theater. Mm-hmm. And for Martin to say, Martin DeMott to say, we aren't an improv school. We're an acting school. Yeah. And the moment that, that he did that, I said, the moment that he shared that with me, I thought, oh, that's exactly it. And when we look at our, our work from an acting point of view, it becomes so much, so much, I want to say easier, but it, it, it makes sense that there's a crossover. There is, and they, you... you uh, you have no idea how inspiring it was to watch like you guys work like even before I was in the touring company but I remember going and, and those moments you're talking about where, where acting is what's happening and not necessarily uh, even in a comedic moment you forget when you're on stage sometimes how inspiring that can be to watch because as a lot of times we get on stage and we're like oh I'm not hearing a laugh so I'm failing and I remember watching an improv set you guys did it was like a Sunday night, I think, on main stage. And I was enthralled the whole time. I remember just thinking, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and I remember seeing like you guys come off stage afterwards, and I think you guys might have thought it wasn't a good set. And I, I always try to remember that because I was so blown away by it. There wasn't a lot of people in the room, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a huge noisy response, mm-hmm. but it was it was great work and those little acting moments were what I was responding to. So I'm like, oh my God, that's an honest reaction. And that, I'm completely into this scene, even though it wasn't necessarily getting a raucous, you know, Saturday right. night improv set response. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget that because I always wanted to remember, I was like, that room was not filled with laughter the whole time and it was still great. You know? It's filled with energy. There's yeah. an energy that everybody has and there's a sharing that we, that, that we tend to, to have over there. But and what, what really helps is the idea that, oh, if I don't get a laugh, it's not the end. Yeah. And it's just, I get to learn from that at that moment. And that also doesn't mean that this scene that we're working on, because it could have been that we were all disappointed because we're working on a show that night, and we and the material that we tried in the improv set didn't fall, didn't fly the way that we wanted it to, that we expected right, right. it to. But at the end of the day, there's also it's not like oh my god, I'm going to be fired. It was like oh okay, that didn't work. Hmm. But I hear you. I totally get that because there's been times where I was in ETC and I was watching uh, 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 Jeff Machalski and Jane Morris and those people, mm-hmm. and to go they don't they don't they're not here for me. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. No, they are supporting each other. They're aware of who I am. They're aware that I am there. But they are together with each other. And how freeing that was for me to go, oh, I don't have to worry about the audience. Because the audience is 75 to 100 people, say, who all are coming from a different point of view. And I don't have to worry about their points of view. I I get to focus on this person who's in front of me. Their point of view. And that's where all the great word comes from, I think. like I always love Stephanie Weir's story about... uh, I'm looking forward to hearing her interview too. Oh, that's um, really great. Oh, she's she's amazing. But um, I remember her story about Dell saying in their class, saying, "If you try to be funny, I'm going to throw a chair at you." <laughs> <laughs> and knowing full well that he really would throw yes, a chair, he he's not. It's not one of those bluffs like some teachers are saying. I'm a tough teacher. You know, Dell would actually pick up a chair and throw it. At you. And she said that's always helped her on opening nights at Second City uh, before a television taping. She always remembers. It's not about going for a laugh. It's about connecting yep. with the person. And then the laughs will come from that, I, I, hopefully. But I always love that story. Because uh, I, I, um, I think that that's, 
that's really where all the best work comes from when you're not trying to be funny, obviously. Absolutely. When you're just saying, I'm gonna listen to what you just said and I'm gonna respond to that in an emotionally honest way. I'm going back to the interrupter, dude. I mean, that <laughs> scene right there is, it, you, you're, so, you're, you're simpatico, you're together. You, you and Conan are, 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 are creating this thing together. And it's just listening to each other. What's the next thing? That's the next thing. What's the next thing? And you're with that person right there. And it's so funny because of that connection. Oh, Not because of what it is that you say, which is funny as well, but there's that, that symbiotic relationship. I need you and you need me in order to make this thing work. That's true, and a lot of my favorite moments at Late Night Two were were uh, ended up being having that improvisational feel. Like, and Conan came from an improv background himself, and right. um, like I remember once I was coming down the stairs as God, and I was wearing sandals. Wait, let's just hear that sentence. I remember one time I was coming down the stairs as God. <laughs> I was dressed in sandals and a big beard. Yeah, right. and I'm coming down the stairs, and I'm very clumsy to begin with, and uh -huh. in sandals, I'm utterly hopeless. And I was talking to Conan, and I'm walking down the stairs, and I slipped. I slipped a little, and. He said, God, have you been drinking? And it, it, it ended up being this really fun conversation. I was like, yes, I, I have deep self-doubt and or whatever. I don't even know what we understood. But we rolled with it because we're like, well, that's half the fun of it is when things go wrong or right. when things, you know, don't. Well, I, I watched one where you were playing the brother of someone that was being homophobic and the hats routine. Oh, the Galliano thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Galliano. And it was a rehearsal, I suppose, that that was online and I posted that one too because oh, it just kept it just didn't it 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 didn't work so much that it clearly could not have worked better. And I know that it was a rehearsal, <laughs> right. and, uh, but I don't know I don't know oh, how we were having trouble getting the hats the on hats. time, yeah. But the hats were some of the most Oh my god, dude. You had a hat of, like, it was a hat that was unicorns on a cloud. No, no, yeah. no. It was a hat of... It was unicorns, yeah. It was good yeah, memory. Of, it's hats with unicorns, and it was a hat with unicorns. There was a hat that was a, 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 an overstuffed Easter nest, yeah. Easter egg nest. Exactly, yeah. And those and are... A pirate's hat. And they weren't that much weirder than Galliano's real hats. He's this fashion designer who wears... Like, there'll be a huge I had huge no idea wolf. about that either. Honestly, if you wouldn't believe the photos of the real one, and our... our Costume designer Scott Cronick is this brilliant guy, and we just tell him to go nuts. Like, in, and he comes in with these amazing designs every time, and he makes us look really good. <laughs> you know? but, uh, but there's but, a joy in that show that there isn't in any other in, that there isn't in any other show, and and it's it's that feeling of the ensemble. There's an ensemble that's with that that's with uh, Conan, that um, uh, 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 Colin Colin Ferguson is it. Why does that not sound familiar? Craig Ferguson? Craig Ferguson. Oh. Craig Ferguson. He has it a little bit as well, but you guys are just such, there's such an ensemble feeling to your show. Oh, thanks, Dave. I, 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 I think it's always felt very much like an extension of the Chicago improv community to me, largely because guys like Glazer and McCann and Dorf and all them were there too. Andy, Andy was in our old improv groups. Um, but I think at its best, like I, I watch a show like Parks and Rec the same way where it's just like, that is an ensemble right. show where everybody is just serving the scene right. and serving the, the, the story. And like Amy, as brilliantly as hilarious as she is, uh, knows when to let the other performer shine. If, it, if that's the scene where Ron Swanson's supposed to shine, she st stands back and reacts very in a small way and lets them shine and that's why the show is so great and um and i think that all my favorite shows whether it's you know mary tyler moore show or cheers have that wonderful um ensemble feel to them her when you're talking about um amy stepping back amy stepping back and doing the small thing or whatever however you described it amy stepping back and doing that small thing made ron's piece work better because yeah. she stepped back you know what i mean it wasn't like i'm gonna let him shine it's more like i'm stepping back because my stepping back boosts that which he's doing i'm not saying you're wrong because you know very well what i'm talking about well that's that's the second city training too not just second city but the, i think improv training at its best Certainly That's what city. it's all Certainly about. Certainly Second City. Yeah, just letting the other, making the other, I remember before one of my training center shows, I was scared to death, and I remember, I don't remember which teacher, I think it might have been Kerry Goldenberg. Um, he just comes in and he said, have fun, make your partner look good. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was instantly less nervous. Right. Even though that's easier said than done. Um, I was like, oh yeah, that's what it's about. Having a good time and serving 
the other person on stage, and then the rest of it takes care of itself. Oh, that's, you know? I, re- I remember that moment as well. I'm not Carrie Goldenberg. It's just funny you should say Carrie Goldenberg because I was reading uh, Tammy Sager did an interview and <laughs> she was mentioning this bad experience she had with Carrie Goldenberg. Oh, really? Uh, I never had what, him as a teacher. What, he just came well, up she was to saying her. what an awful teacher he was over oh. there. And then you, and then I was like, oh my God, what a weird thing in this interview that she did, and oh, it's online. <laughs> and then you're saying that thing, and I'm going, oh well, good. There's something that somebody's saying. Good he about never Carrie taught Goldenberg. one of my classes. I just remember he came up to us as a collective group uh-huh. at one of the training center shows that you do every eight weeks or right, whatever. Right. And um, I remember him saying that. But yeah, I know it, it breaks my heart when I hear about a bad improv teacher being unleashed on students, though, because I'm like, wow, there's a chance this one of those students is going to drop out and never go back because they're going to think, oh, I thought I was going to love improv. I guess I don't. And I'm like, no, you didn't like that teacher. Tammy quit. Oh, that breaks my heart. You know? She quit, but she came back. Oh, good. But yeah, she, of course. Oh, she yeah. quit, and then she called Sharna. And Sharna said, come over here. Oh, that's wonderful. Because Sharna, any opportunity to stab Second City, Sharna <laughs> would take advantage of it. So it's like, she went over there. That's, so, that's I remember when Tammy, first meeting Tammy, and she was like this brilliant, I think, recent, maybe she was still at UFC, but uh, it's amazing how all the different kinds of shows she's written for. Well, she was. She was. A, she, we just had her, obviously, in that seat, and she was talking about. She has. She has a degree from University of Chicago in mathematics. Yeah, she's like, a what? genius. <laughs> what? I know, and just and and it's such a different side of the brain, you know, than than comedy. And she's so such a wonderful improviser to work with. I love working with Tammy. I love hearing the, the people that we know that have degrees in things where you go, "What the fuck are you talking about? Are you <laughs> kidding me?" I mean, that I have a degree in photojournalism, and it's like, well, okay, good. That how you know, right? And what your degrees in? You, I had a kind of an undergrad, uh, sort of a general liberal arts in communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to be a journalism major, and this is so sad. I had to switch to telecommunications because I couldn't type fast enough. <laughs> it's funny how those little <laughs> things that change your whole life. I was like, oh, I, and I, I fully intended to go back and learn to type faster, and I never did. So it was purely oh typing deficiencies. And uh, then I went to grad school. Um, purely to avoid life for a while, and because uh, they gave me a teaching assistantship which would pay for school. And, right. But uh, that was where I started performing improv Where did you get a theater. degree in? It was called, it was ridiculous, communication arts. Whatever you have a means. master's degree in? In you communication arts, uh, which is basically the, psych, the psychology side of communication. Uh-huh. But uh, I went to grad school for all the wrong reasons. And, um, but that was where I love, I have such fun. Who did you meet there? Who did you meet? Like, who, who connected you? At the improv community up there, because oh, did you do the arc? I was in the arc, yeah. Uh-huh. And um, actually, the weird thing about it was, um, I had gone into the Daily Cardinal because they heard they they had cartoonists, and I had done a little bit of cartooning at my college paper. And Bill Cusack was sitting there, uh, and I had seen him in a show at the arc uh-huh. with some friends. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, I just saw you in the show at the arc. That was great. That was really funny." And he goes, "Oh, you know, there's they're actually having auditions for like." Uh, this new kind of short form group over there. And um, he, he'd never remember me. He'd never remember that conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was the one time I met him. I saw He's him one of the way. nicest guys. I Billy is a nice, nice man. He roomed with Conan and Jeff Garland in Chicago years later. It's such a weird small world. Right. But uh, I ended up getting involved <sighs> with the Ark, and that was a wonderful experience. It's a, it's a laundromat now, unfortunately. But Chris Farley was in that first So you were with Chris in that, right? Chris was in my very first improv group. Was it Holly in that years earlier? Holly, Holly Mortel was in there years earlier. I met Holly later when I got to Chicago, and I, I said, oh, you were in the Ark. I, and I, we heard all about them, and they, right. it was like Joan Cusack had been in the Ark, um, and John Mossman, and, and uh, Evan Gore, and right. people like that. But I never worked with them, unfortunately. But Chris was in there, and Todd Hansen, who later became an Onion writer for like the last 20-something years. He was in my first group when he was like 19. And, but Chris was... Um, I remember when he left for Chicago, uh, and I remember, I never want to forget this, because it was, uh, I remember the joy in his voice when he said, I got into the classes at Second City. And I was like, you got into the classes? That's awesome. I remember genuinely being thrilled. And then he came back the next year uh, when I was still in Madison, and he was visiting his family, because he's from, and he said, I got into the touring company. And I remember thinking, that's, the top of the mountain. I remember thinking, right. and I never want to forget, forget that and get jaded because I remember the sheer joy of that moment and how much I was happy for him and how happy he was. And I remember that was always my ultimate goal too, is to get in the touring company. 
I'll never forget Jenna Jolovitz and Tom Purcell. I'm sitting there at Nookie's with them on Wall Street when they were in the touring company and I right. wasn't. And my auditions were always so terrible because <laughs> uh, I wanted it so bad. And they were, I said, I could die happy if I get in the touring company. And I remember them saying, no, no. When you you feel that way now, but when you're in the train company, you're gonna want to be an ETC, and then you're gonna want to be a mainstay. But I was never gonna... like that. I was never okay. like that. For me, I felt like if I was in the training center and this is when it ended, that's great. If, when I got in the training company, it's like if it ended here, that's great. When that's... I was in, in, in Northwest, it's like if it ended here, that's great. That's the ideal attitude, I think. Oh, well, because I, I, think... I never had any expectations because I'm from Chicago. Oh, I am sort of from the area. You, you know, too. but but you, you, but I I grew you know I I think a lot of people who who come there from different places set up an expectation from there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to describe it, but I know that, that there are a couple of people where I go, man, you, you had a shitty audition because you're putting too much into it, whereas I just look at it and go, oh, there's that theater. I never thought I would get into Second City. That's I never a perfect thought I did. attitude to go into an audition with. Because right. um, I, I, always, I always felt, I've said this before, but um, it, uh, auditioning at Second City always felt to me like it, it was like you have a dream woman and they say, okay, once a year, we're going to let you into a room with her and you got five minutes to win her over. <laughs> it's like, that's how it always felt to me. And I was so a tongue-tied wreck like I'd right, be with my right. dream woman. It was, I go, okay, she's in there. Go on in. You got five minutes. Good and, luck. Uh, and as, as supportive as the teachers were, and I remember Mick and Ron West and people being Joyce being out there in the audience, they try to set the most supportive, but right. I would get a hot face and I would just freeze up and get tumbleweed brain and, um, and oh, I'm so grateful they, brain. oh I'm so grateful they came out and saw our group Jazz Freddy because boy that if group they, and she mentioned Tammy mentioned Jazz Freddy too saying really how not. inspiring in this interview she said how inspiring Jazz Freddy was and for me I when I saw Jazz Freddy I was like how the fuck do you do that oh, I didn't know you saw it oh I, yeah I thanks, Dave. thanks so it means a lot that you came out I remember yeah. the fact that guys like you and and Colbert and those guys came out just to see this little. But Show nobody was mind. doing that stuff. But you know, nobody was doing that sort of thing. Except IO was doing it in a way, but not in the way that you guys were doing it. Well, that means a lot to hear from you, because uh, who was in it? Who was in it? it? Was you? It was me, my wife Miriam, right? Who was my girlfriend at the time. Um, Dave Kackner, right? Pat Finn, uh, Rachel Dratch, Gardner, Pete Gardner. Pete Gardner. Uh, we really got it started because he he had been in the group Ed. Right. And he wanted to do something similar. Right. And uh, he was a player and director, so right. for the first run. Yeah, it was, he was uh, Lou Boudreaux. Yeah, basically, that's what he was doing. <laughs> we had uh, Chris Reed. Um, oh, Chris Reed. I love Chris yeah. Reed. He yeah. was wonderful to watch and, uh, and to play with. Stephanie Howard, Susan McLaughlin, and Jimmy Crane. And uh, it was just a wonderful group of people. And um, Kevin Dorff, of course. And, right. Um, yeah, it was a... And I'm still... Um, one thing I love about that time was I had completely given up on the idea of working at Second City because I was like, well, I'm never going to do a good audition there. <laughs> I I've, know I've that now. I've done a few. Um, and I remember walking past the theater and saying, always wanted to work there. It's not going to happen. What am I going to do now? Got to do the next thing. And then I went and did Jazz Freddy with that attitude of, I'm going to do the best work I can with the people I love working with and then it's funny, that's when things happen, is when you let you go. You surrendered. Yeah, you let you go. You surrendered. That's how it felt. I honestly had gave up. I was like, that's not going to happen. Um, so what do I, I got to, I still love this. I still want to do this. And, and um, I think that's when, in my experience, when good things tend to happen is when you do what feels right, as opposed to, okay, what's going to get me the next thing? Right. You know? But it's, it's that, I remember Mick saying, no expectations, no disappointments. And I remember when I first heard that phrase, it was like, what the fuck do you mean? And then to realize, expect, and we've talked about this before, expectations aren't your friend. You know, like, I expect to work at Second City. I expect to work there. It's like, you know what? That, you might have an intention, yeah. or that might be a goal, but you've got to know that that's going to need to be jettisoned if it's going to need to be jettisoned. Yeah, you don't and have no matter what you do, it. no, yeah. no, it's the girl in the room. Yeah, exactly. You know, she might not be ready for you at that moment to do what it is that you want to do. Yeah, or maybe she doesn't like red-haired guys, or right. And it's nothing personal. And it's nothing personal. <laughs> and and at that moment, the moment that you realize it's nothing personal, that's a huge moment too, because it separates your need to control something from something that you have no control over. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and and that's, a, that's so large in, in my mind that there have been things in my life where I go, um, I really need for that to happen because um, that's what that's mine or whatever that is. And it's like, no, it's not yours. Mm-hmm. And you're going to find what yours is and yours is going to be so totally different than what you expect it to be. Yeah. And so many people who sit in that chair, they go, no. Like you never thought that you'd be doing this not and supporting have. a family and supporting a family in a way that you get to say what you want to say in the way that you want to say it. And, and, and your job is to be you. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that opportunity, too, like where, um, I mean, there's times where you, you occasionally have to do things that don't feel like they're in your voice or whatever, but um, to have gotten to do what we do for as long as I have, when I got into it initially, purely for fun, and it's still, like, I, I remember Amy saying in an interview uh, a while ago, someone said, um, why do you still improvise? This is when she was still doing ASCAT in New York, you know, at UCB with us and stuff, and she said, for this, she thought that was the most insane question. It's like, well, for the same reason I did it when I was in college, and the same reason I did it in Chicago. It's the funnest thing in the world. And there's no expectation, really? and there's no goal. Yeah, it's purely a, a joy in itself. There's, right. the, it's not gonna. You're not doing it to get anything. You're doing it because it's the most fun in the world when when you're with the right people, and it's. Um, yeah, there's nothing like it. And, and, and I think that, that, that improvisation is unique in that if I do one of my collages, so if I do that collage, um, that's my collage. That's so I, do, I didn't know that was yours. Yeah, that's my, that, like I do collages, that's and that's amazing. one of my collages, and that's, no, it's not in here, they're, they're on display somewhere else. But when I do my collages, I don't do them to make money at it. Yeah, exactly. And because I don't do it to make money at it, it's not, oh, you know what you gotta have? You gotta have a dog or a baby in your picture. And if you're going to paint a picture of a ship, have an American flag. <laughs> and because that's gonna sell. So yeah. we don't think about that. Exactly. You're just doing it because you like to make art. Exactly. Yeah. And I get to make that art because that's I have no choice but to make that art. I can't have another voice. Exactly, and you, you're following what feels right to you and what gives you joy, and I think the lucky artists, like I think of the Beatles or Martin Scorsese or something, are those people for whom what they have to do also happens to be enormously popular. Right. <laughs> but they're, they're, um, they're, I think they all still take tremendous risks, and, and I think that I look at a guy like Vincent Van Gogh who never, to his own knowledge, ever sold a painting. Right. I don't think. No. He was still making it purely to, uh, like I read this, there's a beautiful quote from Vincent Van Gogh in a, that show, um, The Power of Art, that Simon Shema hosts. It, it, you can, I saw it on Netflix and Andy Serkis was playing Van Gogh and he did this quote at the end about just, he said, I'm the lowest of the low. You know, I, maybe I'll never be known for anything, but if that's true, I would like people to know what a person like that has in his heart. It, I'm paraphrasing. It was no, much I get more, it. It was much more eloquent. But the idea that <laughs> he needed to show what was in his heart, even if no one ever saw it. I think that there's you know? so. I think the universe is the the universe. Every single person on this planet feels that same way, and I think that we are we are blessed in that we're we were we were put on a path literally on a path where we go, where we, we discovered a path. We found our path. Mm-hmm. And that path, like, this is my path. There are other people that are going, I'm really good at this, but I don't know what to do, so I'm gonna wash dishes. And it's like, washing dishes is fine, mm-hmm. but you know, there's something in your mind, there's some, you cannot not be artistic yeah, in exactly. your own way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look at a guy like Keith Richards, and you watch him on stage to this day, and you know that he'd, if he'd never gotten famous, he'd be playing the blues in a in his local pub with his mates, you know, and just his mates, right? <laughs> right. I'm sort of Anglophile right. on me, um, right? I uh, and having you know some black pudding while while he's there, and uh, some <laughs> some crumpets. I'm sorry, where the mates it's hard came not from. to go. It's mates. hard not to go. Uh, but but you know he'd be you right. know he'd no, be playing with work. the factory workers, right. you know, he'd yeah. be playing it because he doesn't have a choice. You could tell. You could see watch him play guitar, and you're like. 
that guy doesn't have a choice. Right. He's got to do that. Right. And he's, right. he'd be doing it for no money. Well, you're you're really into music. I'm really into music too. I'm, I mean, you, your musical knowledge is great. I remember you gave me a, a book by Lester Bangs. I remember you gave me that book once, and uh, and I was like, wow, what, what, who is this guy? <laughs> and I was like, wow. Oh, and I was very right. secret Santa gift. <laughs> yeah, it was really really great. And uh, and I read it, and it, and it was and it really changed the way that I looked at at, at musicians, and I looked at criticism, and I looked at all those things that Lester Bangs. Uh, uh, help people do, um, but when it comes to the work that we do, like in the background, I don't have television going on. I have music going on, mm-hmm. and Spotify is crazy cool. You know, I don't know if you have it. I don't, but I, I, I everyone I know raves about it. It's the idea of what do you want to listen to right now? It's there. You can listen to the whole album, wow. like the entire album. So. I've been discovering things like Philip Glass. I never knew about that. And there's a there's this great cello player, an Israeli cello player named Cohn. I can't remember his first name, but a great cello player. And it's like, and then I learn more about these other people, and I don't stop moving forward. I don't necessarily. Yeah, I have a guitar somewhere. It's in this room over there. So I play the guitar every once in a while. I'll beat the shit out of the guitar. But the inspiration for me is just to play it for me here. That, then that's that's a beautiful thing, I think. Right. Like just doing it because it, it gives you joy and it makes you feel good to express yourself even if no one's in the room with you. you know? I, and a lot of people, I think there are a lot of people go, oh, I can't. What if I get in front of a group of people? It's like, you're not there. Don't. You're not there. That's not where you are right now. You're just wanting to play Go Tell Aunt Rhody on the yeah. guitar. Go play Go Tell Aunt Rhody. Well, Mark Marin said a similar thing on his podcast that he, he mostly plays guitar by himself in his garage and he was coaxed out to do it publicly once, twice, but mostly it's just for himself, you know, and I think that's great. I think a lot of people uh, get a lot of satisfaction out of that. I know I do. What do you, what do, you do? I mean, it's like- I, I like to mess around on guitar too, but um, I never got very advanced at it, but I love doing that and I love... I love listening to music. I love. Um, You're able to see a lot of music too, right? It, I've been turned on to some things through the show that I wouldn't even know about otherwise. Like, uh, like over the years, I've gotten sometimes some of my favorite bands, like REM or something, will come on the show. But yeah, I already Neil love Young, them. dude. I mean, oh, that you was know, Neil Young. My God. And I, I, when he was on the show, I uh, remember Frank Smiley, our second producer, said, "Do you want to meet Neil?" And I'm like, "Oh, I couldn't possibly. You know, I couldn't." And Frank started joking that I was dressed as Frankenstein. <laughs> and uh, Frank said, oh, Frankenstein's scared of fire and Neil Young. So he was, <laughs> and then, but then I was coming out of the, afterwards I'm in a t-shirt, but I still have a Frankenstein head. And I wasn't intending to do this, but it was right when Neil Young was coming out in the airlock after his interview. So he's standing right there. And I just felt compelled to go, I just, like you said with um, Tom York yeah. and that other, I said, I, I just want to thank you. Your music's meant a lot to me. Right. And he's like, oh, thanks, that Frankenstein bit was funny, man. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can die. Neil Young just told me, he goes, hey, okay, thanks, man. Right. He couldn't have been nicer. Right. And it's just, and Did I you know, read his book? Shake, shaky? No, or, the last one that came out. No, his I'd last like book is autobiography. Like um, it's it's all over the place. It's like having a conversation, an ADD conversation. It's all over the place. But you learn some stuff on like that guy. You oh, you just learn about his relationship with his dad, and you learn about like like uh, music and his relationship with other people. Where you go, oh Neil, don't talk about that person so personally. I know who that person is. Oh, you know, like that, like really great that. stories. Well, he he's another guy that. I think, and I mean this in the best possible way, has always remained childlike. And I think the way I think Chris Chris Farley was like that, and I look at people, even like Steven Spielberg, there's a childlike joy in what they do that is why I think they stay vital, because they, and it's all our favorite improviser like this too, where they, they never lose that thing that they loved in it. It might come and go a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, at times. Like, I've, I've had times where I was burned out. and But that, that simple joy you see in Neil Young, like, I heard an interview with him when he was saying, I really love that movie School of Rock. It, was, uh, it had so much, you know, basically he was using words like joy. He goes, the joy of rock and roll. And he goes, my favorite movies are still like Day the Earth Stood Still. You know, <laughs> these movies he saw when he was a kid because he's never lost that no. childlike sense of wonder. You know? and, and, well, there's that line that he has uh, in one of his, uh, that, um, I forgot what song it is, but he's talking about... Uh, 
moving down this road, and he left his friends there. They were just dinosaurs. Oh, Thrasher. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Beautiful song. Right, a beautiful song, but that's essentially about him letting go of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, I think and so. And saying, yeah. like, I left those dinosaurs by the road. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't any good for me anymore. Yeah. Or whatever that is. And, and they go, oh, I get it, man. I get it. And whenever I hear Bob Dylan talk about his art, it's like, this is the way that I am right now, and whatever you want to put upon me isn't about me. Yeah, but to exactly. watch him move forward. Or to watch the courage of him like at Newport when he plugged in and went electric, when he knew the audience was not necessarily going to go with it, and they sure didn't. That bootleg of him and the band playing it um, in... Uh uh, in England. Oh, it's amazing. When, that one, the shouting out Judas. Yeah. Like that thing. He's, he's like, and he had the attitude of, here's where I'm going. You're welcome to come along. Right. And I hope you do. I don't right. hate you. Right. But this is what I got to do. Right. And the Beatles, I still can't believe the number of artistic risks and changes they went through in like a six year period. I mean, think back to 2006 and imagine any band like changing that much at the height of the game when someone would be saying, stick with what you're doing, it's right. going great. Exactly, exactly. Don't change, exactly. don't take the suits off. Right. Don't, you know, <laughs> don't keep the mop top, no mustaches. You know, it's like, these days someone would be saying that and it's right. like, no, I'm gonna bring in a piccolo trumpet and I'm gonna do a song with nothing but strings. And right. it's like, because they were pure artists in addition to being popular. And the, I'm, number I'm still nine, amazed by that. Revolution number nine? Oh, stuff like that. What? Crazy. Yeah, what the fuck is that? Art, right? Know, like, and uh, I, I still don't get that song, but I'm just like, God, to have the sheer guts to just say, "Okay, I'm doing this." And Beck I, does it. Yeah, he's he is. Yeah, the number of changes he goes through too. Are, right. Um, I'm always amazed by people that, because I often felt like in the improv world, there were times where I'd be like, "Okay, let, we pushed ourselves with Jazz Freddie." Why don't we just keep kind of doing that now? Right. And Noah would say, "No, we got to do something new." And when we did the Lois Cash show, Noah was bringing in things, and I'm like, "Why are we changing this?" And so there's a lot of uh, I'm a little bit of a coward sometimes with but change. But we you know? need people to guide us. We need those people, those mix, and we need the the Noahs, and we need those people to go. Wait a minute, I'm going to shake you up a little bit here. Yeah. And if you want to hold on to it, you can hold on to it. And it's okay because it's your journey. But there comes a shake up time. Yeah. And and um. And, 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 and those people that, that rattle my cages, I'm like, all right, fine. Then I go, okay, okay. What if I just surrender it and say, let's give it a shot? Yeah. Because number nine, revolution number nine, and she loves you, where you go, oh, what? Those aren't the same people within the same decade. Or like Tomorrow Never Knows, literally right. two years after she loves you. Right. And it's just one chord, and it's just you know, this droning sound. Right. You can't believe it's the same band. And uh, I'm still amazed by people that take those kind of risks. I, I also think that it's important, and, and I think that this comes with the... With, today I was listening to something, and I was saying, okay, I'm going to pretend that I never heard it before. I'm going to listen to a song and pretend that I never heard it before. Oh, that's cool. And how yeah. beautiful that is for you to do that in that moment. Because yeah. at that moment, you're in that moment. To go, okay, I've heard She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that song a billion times. What if I never heard it before? That's really cool. I like to try that. But it's what we do every time we start a new scene. Mm -hmm. We go, I've never done this before. And we let it, and we, we, we find the joy in that initial discovery. Yeah, and I think I, I sometimes found that challenging in Second City, because maybe because I wasn't a trained actor who had come out of the theater world where people did plays and tried to keep it fresh every night. I often found it very challenging trying to make a scene seem like it was happening for the first time when because you, you tend to feel a little stale sometimes if you've been doing a scene for three months. And I was like, no, it's my job to make this seem like it's happening for the first time. Right. And I found that, like I would work with guys like Neil Flynn at ETC and he had more techniques coming out of theater. Where he experience. Could, yeah, and he, right. he could, he said, I said, do you feel like your experience in real, regular, straight theater helps? He goes, it helps on the nights when I'm not into it. And I was like, wow, that's really true. You can fall back on this discipline and technique when you don't have your heart in it right because uh, there are nights where we just don't have our heart in it but we're distracted I, I it just showed with me like I was like I just don't I don't have my heart in it tonight I'm sorry folks <laughs> I wish I could summon up something you know but I, I uh, but he he said he could fall back on that sometimes and I was envious of that I was like well jealous more um, but I was just um, I always admired people with that kind of training and, and experience he's so good yeah he was and one thing I love about him, 
is that he looks like a cop or a first baseman, but he's the silliest. He has the silliest sense of humor of anyone I think I've ever met. So when it comes out of this guy who looks like a cop, and he says some, like, like I'll never forget, he, he was in a scene once, he was playing Jerry Miner's nerdy dad, mm -hmm. and he goes, that badger's still out in the lawn. It's high time he stopped running our lives. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, wait, how is the, first of all, there's a badger in their suburban yard. He's there enough to affect their life. And it's like, wait, how is he running, how is he running your, their lives? Is he not letting them out of the house? There's so many unanswered questions. You know, I just love that about Neil. He would just say, like, he, he came out in the scene once with Glazer and he just goes, um, John says, where am I supposed to sleep, Dad? There's no pillow. And he said, oh, just stuff some socks in a bread bag. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, I don't know where that comes from. And when it comes out of a guy who looks like Neil, it just kills me. Um, okay, we're going to have to stop there. Oh, thanks oh so much, God. Dave. Oh, my that's when things happen. That's when you let go. What great words. What great words from a great guy. Brian Stack. Oh, we wish him and his entire family just such great, great success back in New York. And uh, we wish Stephen Colbert great success too. I wonder how wonderful that show is going to be. I can't wait to find out. ADD Comedy with Dave Rosowski. Thanks. Uh, Ian Foley, our producer emeritus, uh, who originally did this particular episode. Thank you, Ian. I want to thank uh, my co-producer, Laura Parker. And I want to thank Al Rose for his... Uh, giving us a theme song, I feel like a million dollars from his album, Sad Go Lucky. If you're interested in having me at your theater, your improv school, wherever, well, or if you want to just drop me a line, drop me a line at dave at addcomedy.com. Um, and uh, tell us what you think about the show on iTunes. That really helps. Thank you, and we'll hear you in our ears. <laughs>